Welcome back. It is Suiting Up podcast time. Actually, that's under the assumption that you have listened to the show before, which if this is your first time here, I want to thank you for joining. And I'm your host, Paul Rabel, pro lacrosse player in New York with the Lizards and Team USA. I'm also an entrepreneur. And on this show, I interview other athlete entrepreneurs, media executives, team owners, and other key stakeholders in sports about the duality of the modern pro athlete, basically why we're seeing so many athlete entrepreneurs. That goes into their startup investing appetite, strategic investments, new co's, social media influencing, creative marketing, digital strategies. We dive into all of it, and I try to unpack and identify skill sets that cross over from a championship athlete into the boardroom. Where do I begin with today's guest? Hmm. I suppose he does a better job of recounting our moments together when we were younger. We played sports together and competed against each other, often until one of us or both were bloodied in the face. Not proud of that specifically. In the classroom, we also went toe-to-toe and through our respective college experiences. And to now, my older brother, Mike Rabel, and he's not older by much, and I are business partners. We started a professional relationship together when we opened up a franchise gym back in 2008. That was the year I graduated from Johns Hopkins. And that gym, called Snap Fitness in Joppatown, Maryland, turned into a portfolio of seven, followed by the development of a newer concept, which was a hybrid spin TRX and group training business called Turnstile Cycle in the greater Boston, Massachusetts area. Along the way, we won and lost in business. We learned valuable lessons. We gained incredible mentors, started other businesses, and began our own venture portfolio company called Rabel Ventures. This is by far and away my most personal and intimate interview to date. And if it's not already clear, I care very deeply, abundantly deeply, for the big guy. A former Dartmouth football lineman, all-Ivy player, captain, now multiple-time entrepreneur, investor, and most importantly, as we say, and we'll talk about it throughout the show, what it means effectively, he's an operator. What I'm especially excited to let you guys in on comes actually towards the end of the interview where we tease our next slash newest project projects together in lacrosse. Uh, That probably sounded confusing, but we'll talk about it among other things. And here we go. Enjoy my conversation with my older brother, Mike Rabel. Let's face it. Most athletes have trouble wearing suits. And I think it's because we tend to have broader shoulders, a wide chest, narrow waist, big quads, big calves. Well, I don't know. Sounds like the Hulk, but I suppose we're all made differently and uniquely and wonderfully. And personally, there are very few things better than a custom suit. And Indochino is making it easy to get a perfectly tailored suit at an incredible price online. And you can choose from hundreds of top quality fabrics and personalize your suit just the way you want it. I've done it and it was awesome. Here's how it works. You visit a showroom or you shop online at Indochino.com. You pick your fabric, you choose your customizations, you submit your measurements, you place your order and you wait for it to arrive in just a few short weeks. And this week, the Suiting Up podcast listeners can get any premium Indochino suit for just $3.79 at Indochino.com when entering Rabel at checkout. That is I-N-D-O-C-H-I-N-O, Indochino.com, and hit in Rabel at checkout, and that's 50% off, a regular price, made-to-measure, premium suit. 
And plus, the shipping is free. So go to Indochino.com, hit promo code RABEL, and you'll get an incredible suit that will fit you better than anything off the rack ever could. Today's show is brought to you by doing something nice for someone you care about. I made that up. But our show's sponsor is ProFlowers, and they can help you do that. I've sent and received ProFlowers bouquets, and they always come carefully packaged in a long box. They include banded stems and, of course, beautiful fresh flowers in soil and a vase. ProFlowers wants to help you surprise someone for no reason at all, while also surprising you with a special deal for our Suiting Up podcast listeners. You can get 20% off any of their unique summer rose bouquets or any other bouquet of $29 or more. ProFlowers bouquets are guaranteed to stay fresh for at least seven days or your money is back and you control the delivery date, which is a plus. To get 20% off summer roses or any other bouquet of $29 or more, go to proflowers.com and use my code CROSS at checkout. That is the second part of lacrosse, the sport I play. That's C-R-O-S-S-E at checkout. Go to proflowers.com and at the checkout, type in code cross. Don't wait to make someone's day. So born and raised in Montgomery County, Maryland. Now we're on the left coast in San Francisco at the St. Regis Hotel. I want to start with knee football. Do do you remember those games? Of course. Of course. It was (laughs) not regular football. (laughs) Well, we had to play knee football because we weren't allowed to play video games because when we played video games, we would end up taking each other's heads off. Yeah. So every game, did we not take each other's heads off playing knee football? We did, but because we were on our knees, after about 30 minutes, they were bloody and we would give up and then we would, you know, be done at that point. Yeah. But uh, the reason why we never were allowed to play video games because within the first three minutes, you know, we'd be hitting each other in the face with wooden spoons and whatever weapons we could find. Yeah. <laughs> the football is uh, when, you, when you have a carpet living room, per se, or, or a rug, and one of you hold a football and the other one is standing right across from you and you start on your knees and you try to give a hard count, but the goal is to get the end of the rug yeah, in, it's about, in four downs. It's about four square feet of playing field. <laughs> and so you're basically playing a rugby scrum for <laughs> five minutes. Yeah. Uh, and each person tries to make it across the other end of the rug yeah. with the other person uh, trying to tackle them. We had a, a lot of competition. That's one of the questions we both get pretty regularly is, is, is who won? Um, and, and you won most, if not all. And then we stopped playing because we got in fights. Well, there was... <laughs> We're too competitive. I, well, I'm two years older than you. <laughs> and I, I used to win because I was just bigger um, and stronger. And then it got to a point, I believe I was a junior in high school and you were a freshman. And we were in the backyard. We had a really tiny backyard, but it was, it was long enough. It was about 20 yards. And it was long enough for us to have a, a lacrosse goal. And uh, you know, I'm sure you've heard the stories of, of, of Paul uh, ripping... Uh, you know, lacrosse shots through our neighbor's windows, but <laughs> yeah, that's a whole, that's a whole other story. But there was a moment when we were playing and I would, I played defense. I played lacrosse and I played defense I had a long pole. We would go one-on-one in the backyard. And I specifically remember this because we were standing there and I had my back towards the goal, obviously defending the goal and you were taking a running start. And I was usually always able to, to guard you and check you and get my stick on your stick and, and, and make yeah. the shot difficult for you. And you, you took about a five yard sprint at me. And you threw this juke, which is like sort of your, your prototypical juke that you do now, yeah. and blew by me. 
and I remember I did a 360. I'm not even just saying this because we're on a freaking podcast. There's, I mean, there's, and I turned around and I was like, holy shit, I'll never be able to guard that guy. And it was like one of those like crossovers. And at that point, I realized that you were just a ridiculous athlete. And I was, an, a, you know, an above average, average athlete. No, well above. Uh, we'll get into that. But you were an All-American. Yeah. Lacrosse player. Yeah. Uh, in, in high school. Probably because I was going up against you in the backyard every day. <laughs> Maybe. Was like back, uh, back in the day, I, I suppose now, growing up in the 90s, late 90s. And uh, lacrosse, given that we're from Maryland, is prototypically recognized as a hotbed um, for the state of Maryland, state of New York, I always tell people it's actually Baltimore and Long Island. We're right. from the suburbs of Maryland, um, just outside of DC and lacrosse. There were no JV programs at our high school. No, nope. it was one of the great perks of my freshman year at, at Watkins mill is just getting to walk onto a varsity program is really helps you as, as with your confidence as a young kid. But anyway, going back to those backyard, uh, duels that we had, where do you think we got our competitive nature from our father? I mean, he grew up with three other brothers, uh, son of a former Air Force uh, and captain and, and general surgeon in Winston-Salem, North Carolina, who ran the house like, like a military unit. Yeah. Um, and they played each other in basketball every day. And, and, and uh, that, I think, sort of that competitive spirit of being raised in a very strict uh, yet competitive, very sports-focused environment – uh, led us to uh, you know be very competitive with each other, and I think that uh, that just runs through the family. And you know we grew up in a neighborhood with lots of other kids, and uh, you know we all were we were always playing sports yeah. in the middle of the of the street yep. outside our house, and it just got competitive. And you know you and I always opted to play with each other pretty much in everything, but it was mostly because we would take each other's heads off yeah. if we we're playing against each other, which is not atypical to most yeah. children who are two years apart. I mean, yeah. you know, you see kids now who are three, three to five years old and their parents are like asking me, did you, did you and your brother fight like this? Yeah. And I was like, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but our parents had to put up guardrails so yeah. they literally wouldn't kill each other. Yeah. Yeah. I remember my head went through one of those old metal heaters. Yeah. That was the worst. I still remember that. Yeah. I, it was, it was like a shame spiral for me. I was like, <laughs> you had this cut on your head and I threw you into the space heater and mom came down and I was like, I was more upset, I think, than you were. Cause you were standing there and you had a cut on your head and I just like, couldn't believe I did that to my brother. Yeah. Uh, but you know, people, I was, I was walking with someone the other day and, uh, I was actually walking with, with Andrew Perlmutter and he, he was asking me, he said, so you and your brother are best friends, huh? And I was like, yeah. Yeah. And he said, that's, that's, that's crazy. That's, that's, you realize that's not the case for everyone who grows up even a couple of years apart. And I was like, really? Yeah. And it's just, it's just how we, I think it was how we were raised. I was, someone asked me that last night too. They said, how close are you and your brother? And I was like, well, our parents had to tell us to stop showering together when we were like eight and 10 <laughs> and they just like stared at me and it was like very weird. And I was like, but you know, I was, you know, it was just, we liked singing the beach boys in the shower together. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, how long did we uh, stay in bunk beds in the same room? Probably. Bunk, yeah. Bunk beds. Cause we grew up in a three bedroom house, yeah. townhouse. And yeah. you know, that was what we did. And our sister lived, our sister Rebecca had the other room and her parents yeah. had the other room and we were in bunk beds yeah. forever. Yeah. So back to competition. What do you think now through your exposure in sports and, and the vast exposure in, in business and, and now in entrepreneurship, how do you decipher between someone who is, say, just using this um, as a way to qualify ultra competitive versus someone who's just competitive? Because I always look at it as, you know, 
everyone wants to win. Mm-hmm. Everyone wants to win. And everyone's going to work really hard and be disappointed when they lose. Right. Uh, those that are, are, are playing average and above average in right. sports or in business. So what is it about talking about the, 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 the extremes like a Kobe Bryant and Michael Jordan and, and kind of everywhere in between, how do you get to that point where it's just relentless? I mean, you know, I don't want to turn this podcast into me interviewing you, but I would love to f- hear your your thoughts on that because I'm not a, a world champion. I haven't won championships at the highest level. I've, you know, I played college football at a very high level and, and, and you know, was a, a captain uh, elected by my teammates. But, you know, I was, I have never gone on to the pro league and to, it won at that, to that extent. But in business, um, there's this thing that everyone talks about is healthy competition, and I think that you have to be very thoughtful about that. And I think yeah. that you have to create a construct where the competition uh, is transparent and yeah. it's not undermined by the person managing that, uh, that sort of deliverable but amongst a team or amongst certain people. And you need to make sure that if there is healthy competition, there's a very transparent way that everyone knows that this competition exists or else it becomes political. Yeah. Um, but to, to directly answer your question in sports, I think that people that are incredibly competitive, um, they, there's something else driving them deep down. And I think I would love to hear what drives you deep down. Why are you so competitive? Because, you know, I was describing it to someone the other day, they were asking me, you know, how does Paul win? How has Paul been winning so, so much at the pro level and how is he win- doing so well in business? And I chalked it up to you know, a little bit of OCD. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, and I chalked it up to, you know, I used to find you passed out uh, in our bedroom, watching you know Mark Millen on MLL tapes yeah. <laughs> at 14 years old, and had to turn off, and then you wake up and get mad because I turned it off, but you were sleeping. Yeah. So that was like an early sign of OCD. But but like when you're locked in, you're yeah. so locked in. Yeah. And so if I were to say what makes someone incredibly competitive, there's probably an element of that there. Yeah. Where they're 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 just hyper focused on a goal. Mm. And you know, you and I have had conversations recently about threading the needle between being excellent on the field at 31 years old, like you have been, yeah. but also being excellent in business, which we're focused on now. And how do we divide and conquer? And that's, that's going to be an ongoing yeah. challenge for us. I think uh, the ultra competitors, uh, a lot of it is innate. Yep. So I think it, it's part of that type A personality. Um, the, the other area is that there's this transition. I'm, I'm hoping for myself, and that's what I've been working on. But for the early years... It, it, it almost it, it's it's a detriment to your character development to a certain degree, but it but it paves a path to success in athletics in that you develop because of how meaningful the taste of winning is. You develop mm. this huge fear of failure, mm-hmm. and you work your ass off because you just don't want to lose. Yeah, and you just hate losing. And I remember one of my sports idols. Uh, growing up was Larry Bird, and mm-hmm. he would always say that he, by by a large margin, feared failure more than he enjoyed winning. Mm-hmm. And I even watched tapes of, you know, interviews after championships at Hopkins, and even as late as the pros, where you get interviewed and you just go back into this mental state as an athlete of like, we're going to enjoy this tonight, but tomorrow it's back to work. I mean, how many success stories do you hear about coaches that win a national championship and are on the recruiting trail the next morning? Yeah. So you have this mentality, and I call it like kind of unhealthy, is that like you lose perspective. Your identity becomes the sport. Totally. And 
you just become so hard on yourself. It's tough to live your life personally and emotionally, which are two huge elements as you mature and grow. So while it's been very beneficial to, to grow with that mindset as an adolescent and even through college and most of my pro career, now trying to rewire my brain to enjoy winning more mm-hmm. is something I originally worked on with my sports psychologist, John Elliott, who um, is going to come on the show at some point and talk more about sports psychology and the challenges that athletes face. But Tim Duncan, he used as an example, a guy that he works with at the Spurs, um, not only in practice enjoying playing more, which gave him a 20 to 21 year career, something insane, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. Quiet guy. So he didn't get talked about as much as the other guys, but all the championships he won and the success he had because he enjoyed it. So he, his body took less pressure, his mind ate at him less. Mm-hmm. Um, but he also shifted his practice from someone who's analytical, like, like myself, I would count every rep, every practice, every pass against the wall. That's beneficial for skill acquisition when you're younger. But when you're older and you develop that skill, you have to kind of revisit and just practice for fun, not count your reps. So Tim Duncan would go 50-50. He would count the first half of his practice reps, and the other he would just shoot hook shots, have fun, shoot behind the back. And we were with Steph Curry last night at this Athlete Tech Summit here in San Francisco, and he's an example that a lot of sports doctors point to as like, this guy has fun. That's why Mm -hmm. he's so good. Mm -hmm. He goes out before games and shoots from midcourt. Yeah. But, I mean, it's so hard to have fun, and this is to your point you just yeah. made, when you're tying your identity to the wins or losses that you chalk up. Yeah. And the pressure of how people perceive you yeah. and the pressure, then the pressure that you put on yourself. I mean, I think that's one of the things that we don't talk enough about in sports yeah. is why don't we talk about the, the, the folks, the men and the women who have maybe didn't win a championship, mm-hmm. that didn't win a gold medal, but have so much integrity and they have done something incredible with the platform that they were able to build, right? People talk about Dan Marino being one of the best quarterbacks ever, but he never won a championship. People don't really talk about him that much anymore. But yeah. I've heard great stories about Dan Marino. There's a bunch of integrity. And then there's tons of other people who haven't Carl won. Carl Malone. Carl Malone. John Stockton. Yeah, right? that I whole mean, crew. There's just tons of... Uh, well, I guess they won at the, at the, with Team USA. But, Team USA, yeah. the, the dream team. But, you know, and, and so then naturally you're under this pressure to win. So people remember you. So you leave a legacy of yeah. winning. But how do you extract the integrity, the high bar of this person having a great moral compass? And so, because people care about that. Yeah. There's a lot of people that care, especially in today's world. You want to find people and tie yourself to people and develop role models who have a lot of integrity because there's bad role models out there who have a mic right now. Yeah. And so, how do you find the good ones who maybe not just don't always win, but have a platform because they made it to the most elite level of sports? Yeah. And how do we suss that out? Yeah. Yeah, it's really interesting to to uh, to talk about a time, if there ever will be, with the megaphone of social media, for athletes to talk about the games they lost as much as they kind of post pictures and videos I mean, we of ta- them celebrating. Totally, and we talk about this in the in, you know I've been in the in the in the venture space, um, working for a venture back company for the past five years, and you know everything you read is about. This tech startup just raised this much money, which is great. Raising millions of dollars for venture capitalists is really hard to do. Yeah. I'll make that disclaimer. But everything you read is about this amount of raise, with this valuation, at this exit, blah, 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 blah. I mean, you, you, know, you and I have talked about this. I want to get the, the mailer that says, talks about the, the founders, that, what they learned from losing. Yeah. Because nine out of 10 startups fail. Yeah. And, and that's when you learn stuff in life. And so wouldn't it be awesome if we could talk about the same thing with athletes? Yeah. Like just Carl Malone, and he just interviews a bunch of people who never won NBA championships yeah. 
or a gold medal in the Olympics. And he brings on men and women who didn't have that feat and talks about what they learned and what they're doing in life now. Yeah. I mean, damn, that's interesting. Yeah. That's adversity. Okay. This feels like a good time to take a quick break from my chat with big brother Mike to talk about Skillshare. Let me ask you, are you a professional looking to get a leg up at work? Or perhaps you're just about that side hustle like Mike. And like Mike, Skillshare can help you learn how to assess investment opportunities or even bet on the public markets. I've been a Skillshare member for three years and here's what it is. It's an online learning community with over 16,000 classes ranging from design to business to architecture. And there's many more, and they're all taught by industry experts. Starting a company from scratch, as we know, is very challenging. It requires a vast skill set, understanding the fundamentals of legal to corporate structuring, management, sales, marketing, compliance, that list goes on. I'm asking that you open an account today and get unlimited access to stuff like this for a low monthly price and never pay per class again. But it doesn't stop there. For Suiting Up Podcast listeners, Skillshare is offering your first month of unlimited access absolutely free. That means 16,000 classes. Actually, I'm not sure you can get to 16,000 in 30 days, but I encourage you to try. But first, go to Skillshare.com forward slash Rabel, and you'll redeem your free month of unlimited access at Skillshare.com forward slash Rabel. Now, back to Suiting Up with former Dartmouth football captain, now entrepreneur, Mike Rabel. When you were growing up, you played multiple sports. There's, there's, there's a lot that we're seeing right now between the culture of um, needing to win, never enough, all that stuff. All the conversation, as you mentioned, is going that direction. There's additional conversation going the direction of sports specialization mm-hmm. and uh, you know, a, a faster track to a college scholarship. Um, what do you think the benefits were for you? You played more sports than me because you played baseball. Yeah. Well, but we both swam and yeah. soccer, basketball. I mean, it's interesting you bring this up. I remember I was talking to dad recently because I had a couple of my buddies ask me. They said, man, your dad must be so proud. You know, you got your sister who went to FIT and then obviously your two brothers both played Division One sports and your dad got to go to all these football games to watch you play at Dartmouth and got to watch Paul play at Hopkins and now he gets to watch Paul play in world games and pro leagues and so on and so forth. What did your dad do, right? And that's part of the stuff we're going to be working with, bringing dad into the fold of what we're doing now. But, you know, I remember asking dad this recently, um, and I said, you know, wh- how, how did we, li- how did I even line up with football? Because you don't really, th- you're not thoughtful when you're a little kid. You just play stuff. Yeah. And dad's answer to me was, I just didn't want you guys to get burned down in anything. So if you had an interest in something and we could afford it, I would put you guys in there. And, you know, I would be the coach if I had time. And I would want you guys to play whatever you had interest in. Yeah. Um, and if you wanted to play football, you could play football. If you wanted to play baseball, you could play baseball. And, and if you wanted to swim, you could swim. And I think that led us to a place where you just naturally, as a human being, start paying more attention to the things you're good at yeah. and continue to do those things. So, you know, I, I kind of stuck with basketball because we grew up loving basketball. And then I realized that I was growing wide, not tall. Uh, and so I had to shut that down and then focused on lacrosse and, and football because uh, I excelled more at those at the high school level. And then, you know, uh, got a bunch of attention at, uh, to be recruited to play college football and, um, you know, tons of reasons why I, I chose to go to Dartmouth uh, over other opportunities. But I think it was more of uh, just sort of, I mean, the real reason why I chose Dartmouth was a couple of reasons. One, 
you know, mom, our mother just really pushed us in that direction. And yeah. she was, this was before, you know, college and high schools were wrapping up film. Mom paid someone to put my, my film together mm. and shipped I, it I to all these Ivy League schools. Yeah. Uh, it was, it was Mr. Skis, put it all together. And <laughs> we had these tapes and she was just shipping them to the Ivy League schools. She's like, you have good grades. You have good test scores. You're going to go to Ivy League school if you can get in uh, and play football. And so we used that as a leverage point. And then I was like, I don't want to go to an Ivy League school. I want to go to Towson where all my friends are going. I want to go to Maryland or I want to go to UNC. William and Mary. William and Mary, right? In, in, in places where I had friends who were playing football there or just were going to school. Um, although most of my friends didn't go to college right away. They went to a community college, but I still wanted to stay local because everyone was staying local. So yeah. I remember I wanted to go to Towson and, and, and mom, nothing against Towson, but, but mom was like, you're, you're, you're not going to Towson. Uh, and I had this football coach come to me. I remember, and he was like, I hear you're looking at Brown and Cornell and Harvard and Dartmouth and Penn. And I was like, yeah, but, you know, I, I don't know. I, I kind of want to go play football at Towson or Maryland. And he goes, let me tell you something. And he grabbed my face mask and he goes, one day you went, and he was this big Italian guy, uh, Coach Joe. And he goes, let me tell you something. <laughs> one day you and your friends from the Ivy League school that you go to are going to be sitting around in leather chairs and smoking cigars and talking about the businesses you're in and the business ventures you're doing. Yeah. And he's like, are you serious? He's like, you need to go do that. If you can get to Ivy League school, you go play in an Ivy League school because of the friends you're going to make. Yeah. And I was sitting there, and no one ever talked to me like that. I mean, they talked to me like that in football, but no one ever that direct. And then showed me this path to opportunity. You know, mom and dad did everything they could, could to show us opportunity, but no one really explained to us what going to an institution like that would do for my life or our life, right? And mm -hmm. the coach kind of put that path in front of me so I could see it, uh, as simple as it was. And that was one of the sort of biggest linchpins in me making a decision to, to really pursue an Ivy League school and play football there yeah. was that quick talk on a football field. There's a, there's a lot of conversation amongst entrepreneurs and VCs around you know, the archaic educational system and they're not being, by virtue of um, instruction and course loads being so broad, they're not being really intricate utilities that graduates are taking away from school other than a load of debt. Mm. Um, that, that it's, it's not super loud, but I see it every now and then come across my desk and just listening to you talk about the value in the Ivy league schools. I went to Johns Hopkins. There was a lot of value. We we're fortunate at lacrosse. Um, for the most part, top 10, top 20 schools are top 10, top 20 schools educationally in the country as well. Um, so I didn't really have to make that choice that you did in Virginia, North Carolina. They all would have, uh, given me a great degree. Um, is there any, is there any truth to that? How, how do you look at the school system and, and a lot of the you know, kids making a decision to go and taking yeah. out debt yeah. to do so? Well, I mean, there's a bunch of debate and we could, we could spend probably 20 minutes talking about how the universities and colleges now are you know, uh, with large endowments, they're, they're, they're businesses. Yeah. You know, they have billion dollar endowments, especially, you know, at some of the top 10, 20 yeah. schools and, and they're running a, you know, a hedge fund, a big family office, uh, and trying to make meaningful returns. And then, you know, how do they get cash flow? is charging massive tuitions. And so, so yeah, students are having to take out more and more debt to afford college and, and, and grad school. And it's, it's tough. Yeah. It's a big load to bear. Yeah. I mean, there's been businesses like, uh, you know, SoFi, Social Financial, came out of, sort of spun out of the fact they saw all these people graduating from top 20, universe, 20, top 25 universities, and they said, well, I'll just go lend that person $100,000 at 4% because I know they'll pay it back because they're going to do a good job. Mm -hmm. But what about all the schools that, that aren't top 25? People are still having to pay for 
those institutions and take on that debt load and figure out a way to get a job and pay that back. And so I think that's really difficult. And so to answer your question, one of the first things I ever thought about why I wanted to be an entrepreneur was I thought that there was this massive gap in sort of the blue collar world and they weren't understanding this sort of these real world uh, applicable skills that weren't being taught really at a career center at a top institution or a top school. And they definitely weren't being taught at vocational schools or sort of community college or, you know, um, lower programs, lower rated programs. And so I thought, how do we you know, weave in, how do we create a curriculum to teach people sort of how to show up for an interview, how to put a resume together, yep. you know, how to host, uh, how to have a lunch, what kind of questions to ask, how to take notes. I mean, very simple things that most of the people in the world that I had no idea I needed to do. Yeah. Uh, you know, we don't really, we, we come from a pretty middle-class background, you know, yeah. you know, dad's paper salesman, mom's an art teacher, and they gave us everything we ever needed. But it wasn't like we knew how to put a resume together, right? Uh, and no one was telling us how to do that. And it wasn't like even Dartmouth Career Center was doing that. Mm-hmm. I didn't take one business class at Dartmouth. Now there are some more business classes, and now you're seeing people, venture capitalists, like innovation up, labs, innovation labs, like we heard from you know, First Round Capital yesterday. And so now there's more, you know, there's marketing and, and accounting classes being taught at liberal arts schools, and there's entrepreneurship classes being taught at big state schools, which which is great. And so people yeah. get this real world these real world skills and applications, but I still think there's a massive gap. And you've seen some technologies companies trying to address these, this skill gap, which I like to call it corporate hygiene. Yeah. And the way I got that was going and working at my first job at Jones Lang LaSalle. But you know, that's a, a, a long soliloquy of saying that there's a lot of things that you can do and fix. And I think a lot of it has to center around the career, um, uh, the career centers, yeah. um, and then obviously uh, somehow addressing the massive cost of tuition yeah. and the debt that's being taken out and burdened on people. Yeah. So at Dartmouth, you played football. Yeah. Um, what were, what was that lifestyle like? Balancing yeah. uh, time in the classroom and on the field, weight room. Yeah. Through the weekends, off season. Yeah, I mean it was tough, uh, and I, and I'm not looking for a sympathy card at all. But it wasn't like I was on scholarship. It was D1 football, D1 AA football, but it wasn't like I was on a scholarship. And right. it wasn't like we had a lot of resources either. I mean, Dartmouth is an academic school first. Yep. Um, and you know, obviously football helped me get in there. And I felt a, a massive debt to – and being a competitive athlete, I felt a massive debt to the school to try to turn the program around. Uh, the last championship we won when I went there in 2002 was in 96. So it had been a while since we won an Ivy League championship was the pinnacle of playing Ivy League football. And I wanted to turn that program around. And I was part of this class that was said to, to do that. And so, um, you know, I, I focused a lot on football. And my first couple years uh, also, I wasn't prepared for the curriculum and the type of coursework and the competitive nature of an Ivy League classroom. It was really competitive. Yeah. And there wasn't, we didn't have a tutor and anyone helping me. I came from Watkins Mill and Watkins Mill is a, you know, a, 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 a tough place to, to go to high school. Um, and you can look at the stats. It, it's a, it's a, a high school, a public high school in Montgomery village. And they've had their struggles there. And I did well at high school, but I wasn't um, at a boarding school. I didn't, I didn't go to a, like a Hotchkiss or yep. you know, a Hill school where it prepared me for the type of curriculum and pressure you're put under in the yep. academic setting. And then that meets full-time football obligations. Yeah, Two I days. remember the, the difference at, at DeMatha going right. from freshman year at Watkins Mill. I remember you studying. To getting daily quizzes. Yeah. You were like, I can't do this. Because you, you were like, this is ridiculous. There's, There's so much pressure on me. Yeah. And I'm supposed to play lacrosse. Mm-hmm. But you were prepped. Yeah. Um, and they don't have that type of preparation or focus. They're just focused on getting kids to graduate the type of high school I yeah. went to. Yeah. Right? Um, and so not only was I introduced to this competitive environment at the Ivy League school, 
but I was also uh, had to fulfill Division One football obligations. And and so you know that's two a days. That's spring ball. That's lifting every day. That's running every day. Uh, and it's hard to, to be great at both. And so I made a decision to be try to be really great at football um, and be average at school. And I think I missed out on a lot. Yeah. I missed out on a ton. Yeah. Uh, and, 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 you know, I've thought a lot about, you know, I want to go to grad school so I can get that full college experience. I went up to my 10 year reunion you know, a few months ago and I was like the most active person and like super involved in ever. I was like doing yoga on the green and yeah. like talking to old classmates. And like, I went to a couple, like I went to like a little art display and I was trying to soak up as much of Dartmouth because I missed so much of it because my head was in the weight room the entire time. And it means yeah. I didn't care about school. Yeah. I learned a lot, but I was really, really focused on football. Choice. I had to make a choice. You had to make yeah. a choice. I mean, obviously, there's the incredible people that, that are able to do both, but that's like one out of every you know, 100 folks, I think. But you would still say that they're, that they're not getting the full experience. It's hard. I remember uh, the few players that I played alongside Hopkins that were pre-med, yeah. and they would miss two practices a week, and they probably developed um, – what turned out to be a, a, a less powerful relationship with our coach played less. Yeah. You get a reputation of not being fully bought in. Mm-hmm. You know, their jobs are on the line. Yeah. You know, you bring in revenue for the school. Yeah. Right. And if you're not fully in, I mean, for them, it's for the coaches and it makes sense, right? It, it's, you're getting a degree from Johns Hopkins. You're getting a degree from Dartmouth. That's good enough. You give us four years of busting your ass here. Yeah. Because we got you into the school. And I don't think it's that simple. It's not that binary. Right. But that's how they view it. Right. And they want you to show up and they want your weights to improve. And they're going to be watching your film every single day. You put a product on the field yeah. and you're expected to show up. Yeah. And that's really hard. That's hard on the body. It's hard on the mind. Um, you know, you get back and everyone's been studying all day long because classes end at, you know, two o'clock and you get yeah. back from, you know, ice baths and, and dinner and it's 830 and you have to, to cram till midnight and then you have to wake up and you have 5 a.m. mat drills. You're, you're, you're hazing yourself. Now, I mean, I'm not looking for a sympathy card again, but yeah. it was tough work. It's it, hard. Pre- it prepared us. Yeah, I think it prepared us. You know, it it, it is a, a real grind. You, uh, we talked a little bit at the start of the show of like the Carl Malones of the world, um, the Dan Marinos, yeah. and you came in with a highly touted class at Dartmouth. Mm-hmm. And you often remind me of this when I lose games, which I lose plenty of, <laughs> and have lost championships. My senior year at Johns Hopkins, I lost the national championship game to Syracuse, and I'm, I feel I, I'm always quick to remind folks of that because it's just as important as the the championships that I've won. But now as a professional, you'll always send me a note and say, I never won an Ivy league championship. Yeah. And, and so what was that like, you know, and, and how did have you processed and how did you process that with your teammates? I mean, you know, I think we lost something like when I was there, like 35, 36 games. And so I did a lot more losing than I did winning. And it's really hard to go through an entire year of preparing for 10 games and to lose most of them. Um, and, and Dartmouth has obviously turned itself around. We have a great coach and everything like that now. But that was really hard to process. And so I got to a place where, and I always kind of send you this note before games, and, it, and I don't know if, if we've ever gone deep on it or not, but I always say leave it on the field. Yeah. Um, leave it all on the field because you never know what it's going to be your last game. And you never know if you're going to have another opportunity. And so I started looking at games as just the game. And I stopped caring about the wins or losses. And I cared about the product I put on the field. And I would think about my own win, which is not the right thing to do. But did I put a good, good enough product on the field? Yeah. Because in football and just like in business, if you have 11 people working their own job really well to the best of their ability, that yeah. team's probably going to win. Yep. So if I didn't get knocked off the ball, if I was able to get one sack a game, recover a fumble, uh, never get reached as a nose guard, 
then I was doing my job. And if I scored better than 95 in a game, then I won. I won my game. Yeah. Right. And that's how I, that's the place I had to get to. It's always had the motto is leave it on the field, leave every ounce of fiber and mental energy and physical energy on the field so that I could have my own personal W. Yeah. It's amazing how football is, is far more regimented than more free flowing sports like soccer, basketball, or lacrosse, where you can impact the game as a midfielder in lacrosse more than uh, potentially an attackman who's just on that side of the field or a defender or just a goalie who may only see 10 to 15 shots. You see it more in basketball where one of the five players can take over. You can shoot from anywhere on the floor. You're playing both sides. In football, I mean, it is a, it is a playbook game. And it takes all 11 people to win. So Every person has to do their job at the yeah. highest level. And I got to imagine that the really difficult part about a locker room in football is going back, having lost a game, and knowing that you actually played a good game, Mm -hmm. and there were some other guys that didn't, and and you could almost point more than basketball and and soccer that, like, that was probably on them. Mm -hmm. And so that has got to be really hard. I never played football, but I I know in lacrosse, sometimes you miss a shot, you, you miss the opportunity, you're like... Man, but there's just so many other plays, and you could have gotten back and stopped something here and there. And in football, it's like I gotta, I gotta stop. You, know, you play D tackle, yeah. So you gotta penetrate, not miss your tackles, and get a sack. You do all of those, you still lose a game. Still lose. You still lose. I think, you know, I mean, I've never seen more grown men in you know 100 square feet crying together than after a loss in a football game, and we men would just be weeping because you put so much energy into this. And I think you get to a place where I think football is just so violent and it is so intense that, and you know that pretty much anyone who's on the field at any given time or in the locker room with you is one unit. And even if you're beating each other up all preseason long during practice, you come together. And so for us, there was never any finger pointing, even though you maybe knew that the offense wasn't playing well or whatever it was, or maybe the defense had a bad day, although we never really did. Uh, (laughs) uh, I'm serious. But (laughs) no, um, you come to a place where you've just, everyone's, everyone put everything they had into that game and you walk out and and, and so no one's pointing fingers and and you know collectively. And you know what? If someone didn't, they're not playing next week because there's someone who wants that spot. Hmm. It's hyper competitive. And I always say football, you know, there's nothing that compares to war with all of our buddies who are in the military, right? Yep. But I think it's the next closest thing when you're going out there and you're fighting someone. Remember for, for an hour, uh, in, in two hours, yeah. you know, and and the, the fist fight, especially the line you're getting in, you're hitting something. I mean, I'm staring at, I'm watching film of someone every single day for the week until Saturday. I know what their face looks like. I know how they get off the ball. I know if their knuckles are white or not. Yeah. And then all of a sudden, I know what their name is, what their middle name is. Yeah. I know where they're from and how much they weigh, how tall they are. And then all of a sudden, for two hours on a Saturday, I'm fist fighting with that person. Yeah. And that's intense. Yeah. It's an intense feeling to walk up to that. Yeah. And then you have a bunch of people watching you. Yeah. And then you get off the field and you're like, wow. And you're, whole, and you're numb because you can't really feel anything because of the shock of the loss or you're super excited because the win but your body's numb because you're just beating the crap out of someone for two hours. And so yeah. that person beating the crap out of you for two hours. Yeah. It's intense. And you could, you know, you could, I've seen guys, compound fractures, bones popping out, getting knocked out of games. I mean, there's real physical risk in each game. Yeah. I think that's what brings it to a place where you don't know what's going to happen in that adrenaline rush. Yeah. And, and the biggest topic 
arguably around health and safety and football lately has been CTE. And, sure. and, uh, and you have a, a, a close friend mm-hmm. that, that passed away, Pat mm-hmm. Risha. Mm-hmm. Uh, what was that experience like yeah. knowing and, and how did that, you know, what, whether it would be the, the autopsy or sure. whatever came back in. Yeah. Uh, you know, it shaped the way I look at football. It shaped the way that I, I am able to watch the game. You know, Pat was my host uh, when I was a recruit. He was one of my close friends. He played fullback at Dartmouth. He was one year older than me. Um, one of my best friends from college married his younger sister. So I'm very close and, and woven into that family. And, you know, um, he ended up uh, you know, taking his life. And, and uh, a few years ago, when they did an autopsy on his brain, and they found out he had full-blown CTE. And that's, that's scary for me. As a college, he didn't play in the NFL. Yeah, you know, I didn't play in the NFL, but I played five years of college football, and he played five years of college football, and that's scary for me. And there's no way to identify if you have CTE or not, right? Hopefully, there's some technology like functional MRIs are able to pick up on this stuff at some yep. point. But I don't even know if I want to take one. Yep. And so, you know, sometimes I miss someone's name or can't remember something, or the words aren't flowing from my mouth as fast as they were one day. And all of a sudden, I'm like, am I developing something, or am I just getting older? I'm not really sure. Because I play college football, and I know that one of my best friends uh, you know, took his life because he, he couldn't live with himself anymore because he had this, uh, this expedited aging process of his brain caused by football. And that's what it does. Yeah. And all of a sudden, you, you start having early onsets of, of, of you know, different mental illnesses, and you know, just your brain expedites the aging process chemically yeah. because you just have so many pounds to the head. Yeah, it's like an inside-out swelling. Yeah. The, the thing that's startling for me around helmets, and we talk about football, we talk about lacrosse, bike helmets too. Uh, and this is part of the reason why, from a technology standpoint, they haven't gotten to a place where they're fully pr- protective of a concussion, which the, 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 the video that we see done by the NFL, which actually was financed by the NFL, sure. isn't actually how our brain moves left to right. A longer conversation. I did some research on it. I've been listening to some podcasts, but the current helmet is built to protect from a skull fracture, mm-hmm. and and that's how helmets were originally created. And it's there, there's a company out in Sweden that ha, that is basically like this airbag technology. It's no helmet. You lodge it to the back of your neck, and it senses for bike riders, which is the number one uh, case of of crash and concussion, and then. Mm-hmm come soccer, particularly women's soccer, than football and boxing. But when it senses you're off your bike and airborne, this airbag just pops up. And apparently it, the success is, is far better than a bike helmet. Mm. But because of the contact that you have in football off the line, and then there are certain regulations around having to have protective piece above your head. So I just find it unbelievable how far behind we are, but the lack of transparency, transparency and education on like, why aren't these concussions being resolved? Right. Well, it's just they're the micro concussions. Yeah. Right. And there's this, I mean, you and I have talked about this. There's this sense of, uh, in, in most sports, it's particularly in football, um, and both on the men's and the women's side of, you know, being tough. Yeah. And so you can't see a concussion. You can see when, when my bone pops out of my hand or my leg's broken, but you can't see when my brain is bleeding. And so if I have, I remember I hit, hit this guy when I was playing against Yale in the backfield, I got up and my mouth guards on a chin strap was unbuckled and I had like a bunch of red dots all over it and I couldn't see. Middle linebacker clipped me back up and said, let's go. And I remember the rest of the game. 
I definitely had a concussion. Yeah. But you just keep playing. Yeah. Right? You just keep doing it. And there's this sense of you got to be tough. Yep. And it's the micro concussions really that happen every single time that you don't have that big hit that you don't see yeah. that, you, that you really can't feel, but it was a big hit and th- th- there's nothing you can do. There's no technology you can put into, into football. There's, there's nothing that is, there's, there's going to be, that's how the game is played. That's yeah. why it's so quote unquote exciting. Yeah. But if you think about it, our brains are sitting in like a you know, bunch of fluid. It's not wrapped around with tendons or our brain. We're not structured like a woodpecker. Yeah. We're not using our heads for, in, but in football you use it as a device. Yeah, it's your battering ram. I hit people with the front of my head every single play in high, in college, in high school, and in practice and in games. That was my bat- battering ram. Yeah, and so now you know I think about this, and there's proof. I mean, we just saw the the study that came out a few weeks ago about all the brains that were submitted to the CTE study, um, and the unequivocal feedback that most of these brains had uh, CTE, if not all all of them. Um, Obviously, there's a little bit of submission bias there, but beside that, it, you know, it, I think about it now, and I, I would be a far less productive football player if I try to play now, knowing what I know, and I probably wouldn't be able to play. And so we'll we'll, we'll use that as a segue to the NFL, which I remember being in college when when uh, the teams were were asking for a few scouting tapes of yours, mm-hmm. and and it was one of those scenarios where it was like, okay, there's interest. Um, we're going to send some tapes and I can go out. And frankly, there are, I mean, we talk about coach Belichick. Yeah. We both know him really well. And he was the first guest on this show mm-hmm. and he's made a career of placing uh, undrafted players mm-hmm. onto his roster. Uh, I've always said that you could have played in the NFL and probably had a long career in the NFL, but you decided not to. And you went right into the workforce. You mentioned Jones Langless out earlier mm-hmm. uh, in real estate. What, what kind of went into that decision and were there some things I mean, it was probably a bit of insecurity, if we're just being honest. Like, I, yeah. I can't play in the NFL. I go to an Ivy League school. Yeah. Uh, you know, uh, but I think it was a hybrid of, of that. It was a hybrid of uh, broke my foot halfway through my fifth year. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that was really difficult for me mentally. Uh, so I was a very low place about myself and my value to my team and to my community and to my school. Uh, and it was probably also a combination of you know, you, you're able to secure a job um, and uh, that's going to pay you some amount of money that you never thought you could make right out of school and acquire a skill set that everyone talks about is very valuable. And so I just did that cost-benefit analysis, and I said, you know, instead of just beating myself up for another few years trying to play in the NFL or trying to make it to a team or a practice squad or whatever, I'm going to lose a bunch of weight because I'm sick of being 310 pounds, right. <laughs> and I'm going to go grind and accumulate a bunch of skills and try to become a business professional because everything I've done in my life I've been pretty good at. I'm going to go try to be really good at business. Yeah. And so how did you keep 300? How did you put 310 pounds on? I, I used to eat uh, pizza slices with chicken breasts on each one. I was telling someone about this <laughs> did, the right? other day. Yeah. <laughs> two two slices of pepperoni was was like the in between meal when I needed to keep weight on. <laughs> Uh, usually at like 10 o'clock at night with my roommate Craig yeah. and we would order pizza and then I would order two also chicken breasts and I would slap a bunch of buffalo sauce and blue cheese on them. <laughs> and so it, it was just, just very gluttonous. <laughs> if I'm being honest, it was just a football coach. But you had to because you would sweat so much. It was the, it's the most difficult team as an yeah. a, difficult thing as an athlete during season, keep weight on. Yeah, but it's crazy. I think about my life now, all I'm doing is eating like a rabbit. Yeah. Eating wild rice and kale and, and, and quinoa and like, skipping breakfast because there are fewer <laughs> calories in my body in college i'm eating everything to get my hands on yeah cookies and whole milk and pizza yeah. and yeah. strombolis yeah incredible yeah <laughs> i miss those days we all do all right so back to uh your your choice to, to enter the professional landscape in real estate sure 
you uh, did. How'd you know you were going to get in real estate? I followed that path when I was right out, just because you did. But. Yeah, I mean, I think I think it was a combination of you know, I did some a bunch of Wall Street um, interviews, and you know, was probably intimidated a little bit, and then uh, I liked the the sales aspect to real estate. You know, I, I got into a, the corporate real estate group, which we were servicing a few large clients. Yeah. So I was going to accumulate a skill set from it was more consultative real yeah. estate. Uh, so we helped our clients with things such as selling buildings, buying buildings, leasing, yep. property management decisions, all these types of decisions. And then we'd have to you know, do a lot of one-to-one work with our client, which I thought was very unique. And I was able to gain a skill set from that, but there was also a sales aspect of that as well. Um, and so I thought that was very unique and, and, uh, you know, a place I was got, got to be in Washington, DC, yep. close to our family, yep. which was really important to me out of school as well. Uh, I lived at home cause I wanted to save a bunch of money. Yeah, uh, and and I knew in the back of my mind that I always kind of wanted to be go be an entrepreneur. And I said, you know, I just got to stash cash right now. And I would take the red line in every single day from Shady Grove, uh, which is in Gaithersburg, all the way down to Farragut North at 18th and K, and pop out and go to work and work get there before my. This is what I tell kids now when, when I'm working. I was like, I got there before my boss got there, and I wouldn't leave even if I have any work to do yeah. until he left. Yeah, and I would always constantly ask him if I had if he had work for me to do, because not only did I want to learn, but that's what you did. Yep. And now it's like I'm having to talk to kids. I sound like an old man. Now I'm having to talk to kids, though, about like getting in, you know, by nine o'clock. Yeah. I mean, damn it. I was on the freaking train at 6, 6 a.m. Yeah. You know, and then I was in there by 7 30, yeah. just so I could beat Jeff into the office. Yeah. Right. And then he would, he lived in Baltimore. So I'd have to wait until he would leave at nine o'clock. Yeah. And that's just what you do. You grind. And yeah. You, and that's, and that's, and, but, that's just how the world worked when I, when I was working first out of school, when yeah. I was an analyst. Yeah. And that's just what you do. You were in college balancing for the first time in your life, managing your time between playing and, and the weight room and performing to taking your course load and, and doing quite well at that. You get into the workforce, you're, you're in real estate, you know in the back of your mind that you want to uh, be an entrepreneur. You launch uh, a, a number of fitness facilities, fitness concept. Yeah. Um, while you were working in real estate mm-hmm. and, and saw, ran that through for another three to five years. Yeah. So you were effectively having this dual approach even then to get to a place in your life where, where now you are and yeah. still hungry. But uh, talk about that moment where, where you actually started to operate on your own as an entrepreneur. Well, the path to it was um, pretty decisive. I knew that there was going to be a long path, but I didn't have an idea in particular. And, you know, you had some time and flexibility and you act like it was just me, but we did it together. Uh, And so if it wasn't for you, I don't think we would have done it because you wanted to go full-time lacrosse. Yeah. Right. And no one was going full-time lacrosse at the time. And you said, I need a way to have a job to make some money, but then start focusing and going full-time lacrosse. Yeah. Right. And so we said, okay. So my roommate from college and I, we had, he worked at Summit Partners at the time, and we had a deal where we could open up a Snap Fitness as franchisees, and we only we needed one person to work there. We could keep our day jobs, keep the cash flow on, yep. and you were like, well, I'll just work there, and I'll grind out, yeah. right? And no one even knows that you did this, because you're super <laughs> humble, you don't talk about it. <laughs> and you were sitting in that gym in Joppa, Maryland, the first gym we ever opened, and you were slinging gym memberships, yeah. <laughs> right? And, and I said, make it sound like you were slinging snake oil, but, but it was an amazing amenity to the community. Yeah. 
Um, but the, you know, you were learning about sales. You were doing learning about ops. You were learning about cash flow management. You're learning, learning about marketing, local marketing, grassroots marketing. People know about that. Yeah. Stuffy mailboxes with flyers. Shit. I mean, that's what yeah. we were doing. Went to the local Domino's. Yeah, it was incredible. And yeah. I remember, like, Structured I couldn't wait to leave them. work to go up to Joppa on the weekend and stay up in Baltimore with you and just grind out on that gym, that asset we had. Yeah. That was ours. That was our baby. Yeah. Uh, and from there, it just kind of took off, right? That started doing really, really well. I remember, I, I remember the process of having to cut that check because we didn't, couldn't get debt financing to open that up. We thought we could because we were a bunch of smart guys with, with a model that worked and we had to procure the insurance and everything, but we couldn't get financing. So that started going really well, making money, the first one. That was the economic times as well, though. It was back yeah. in 2009. It was right on the back of the mortgage crisis. Yeah. So it was, it was a product of that, but it was also a product that we were first-time uh, franchisees, first-time business owners. And still today, pretty much no lender that's going to give you a, a, a reasonably priced term loan uh, will give it to you without at least two years of operating experience. So that's, mm. just, that's just industry standard. But still, at the time, we thought we could convince them, right? Yeah. That's just what you think when you're an entrepreneur. Uh, and so, you know, the first one went well, and then, you know, we opened up a second one and, and I quit my job and I said, you know, I'm going to go do this full time. Yep. Uh, and so my business partner at the time, uh, was at the Stanford business school. Uh, and you know, as we opened the second gym and then I opened the third and then the fourth, that whole process, we still couldn't find reasonable SBA terms or a loan from a bank. Only thing that was really available was high interest rate loan opportunities. And we said, we got to do this a better way. So I was part of a founding team that decided to create our own lending company. And so uh, we raised some raised seed money out here. And I opened up our New York office. Yep. And I was threading the needle of trying to continue to manage our gym company with all the franchises, with friends and family money in them. And also... Uh, lead sales and revenue for this new early stage startup that, that we created um, where we were going to do lending to first time franchisees. Yeah. And so my job was to fly around the country and find franchisors who wanted to provide their new franchisees with the lending option because banks weren't doing that. And so that was 2011, 2012. Um, so you found a problem that we had as franchisees correct. and not being able to take out any debt. Right. And give like a high level reason as to why we wanted to take out debt from the bank versus pursue raising money or self fund. Right. Right. So wh why does it, why did we want to specifically, it has, it has to do with have a, having a better IRR on the back end, but like educationally speaking. Right. Well, we just, well, if, if you're not using your own cash flow and if you're not having to raise equity to, to dilute yourself, yeah. getting leverage from a bank or, or, or debt is going to naturally produce better returns for yourself or your investors. Right. And so we couldn't access terms that made sense to create that IRR bump like you're talking about. Yep. And so we decided, why don't we just go out there and, and put an 11% term loan product in the market and lend it to good franchisees of great brands and be a, a really great, transparent, tech-enabled online lender. Yep. I mean, no one was doing this. Now there's a whole category in Silicon Valley called you know, financial technology, yep. fintech. Yep. And, and, and there's a bunch of players that are doing what we were doing. But mm -hmm. we were kind of first to market. So we had that opportunity in the U.S. to do that. Uh, we got our debt capital from uh, you know, wealthy individuals and family offices. And we would do a capital call twice a month. And we would take their capital and give them a blind allocation to the loans we were able to source from franchisees. And so big partnerships with Papa John's we were able to snag and Pinkberry and really good brands where we believed in the business model, believed yeah. in the franchise system. And we thought those were lower risk than just going out and finding random borrowers. So, you know, that process was incredible. 
learned a lot about myself, but then, you know, we, we got to a place where we were running out of money, just like any early stage startup does. And you start thinking about your series a, and, you know, we were a team of 10 people with mostly interns. Uh, and you know, we wanted a valuation that maybe was fair, maybe wasn't, but we didn't like the term sheets we were getting. And uh, a company called funding circle came in and saw us and went through the whole song and dance that you do when someone's going to buy you. And we got pretty lucky and they ended up acquiring us in October of 2013. Yep. And from there we just took off. And so that was a really good experience. Uh, and I'm happy to talk about that, but that, that experience was, you know, life changing, uh, and, and, and made me into a better person. Yeah. And you moved out here, moved out that. here, moved out here before that happened because it just made sense to consolidate. Things weren't really happening in New York. Everything was happening in San Francisco. Yeah. And so I made a decision to jump and, and come out to San Francisco. And Funding Circle was headquartered in the UK. In the UK. You guys spun it into the US office. Yep. Yep. And you progressed over five years with Funding Circle and was VP of sales and partnerships. Yeah. Yeah. Started, uh, we started with 10 people. Uh, I had one salesperson uh, who, who was like an ops slash salesperson, um, built the team up, uh, led revenue for the past five years. Um, you know, Got, can't really talk about numbers because right. you know, it was just sensitive information. Got to the place where you know, the sales team was very large, BD team, partnerships team was very large, over 60 people, and got to a place where um, you know was was a, a part of boardroom meetings, decisions, uh, uh, strategic initiatives at a global level. Um, and I think the biggest lesson for me was the sort of the, the very direct feedback that, that we created as a company that made me a better human being and a better leader, personal, feedback. personal feedback. Yeah. About, and, and so you, the only way to learn that honestly is to go through stuff. It's like a relationship. It's like, you have to create that line of communication yeah. in order to become a better person, a better leader. And I think we did a really good job of that at funding circle and we had to build that. Uh, and I think that was one of the things that, you know, we took, we worked with you know, a lot of my business partners were Stanford GSB and they still are. And a lot of, one of the things they talk about at Stanford is, 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 uh, feedback is a gift. Yep. And I think that we talked and we use that to provide a great feedback loop when we're at funding circle to make our leaders better. And so I took that as a personal mission. I always view myself as a leader, someone who can build things, someone who can lead people by example, yep. uh, and also communicate well, but there were times sometimes when you don't, right. Yep. And I had to get that feedback and it was hard. And there were nights when I would just sit there and, and just say, I can't do this anymore. And I would call Sam, the, you know, the America CEO, and be like, I can't come to work tomorrow. And he'd be like, what do you mean you can't come? I'm just like, I, you know, this is so tough. Things weren't going well. And he'd be like, what are you talking about, man? He's like, we got to do this. Yeah. But then that's why you have business partners. That's why you have people who are in the trenches with you. And you, you get up and you pull, put, every, put your work suit on just like you do your pads, yeah. your stick, and you go back to work the next day. Yeah. But at the end of the day, it makes you a better person. And, and I think that, you know, the business is in a great place and, you're, we're doing a lot of lending. We've created uh, thousands of jobs uh, through the lending we're doing in the yeah. U.S. market, um, and, and we're we're lending out hundreds of millions of dollars uh, per year. Yeah, you you talk often about how people build businesses, not the Excel spreadsheets yep. or necessarily the product or the service specifically. Mm -hmm. It's the people. And out here in Silicon Valley, you hear from a lot of VCs that that have this founder fit mentality. They want to know who the founder is. They want to um, you know, figure that person out, whether she has grit, uh, how committed he is, uh, how thoughtful, what their experiences are. Uh, and, and when you talk about people and businesses, we know that it's people in sports. You know, we don't have a better football than they do. It's, both teams use the same football. So that's something that you were grounded in and always knew the power of teammates, the power of leadership. You were a captain at Dartmouth. And so 
that probably was a strong crossover skill set for you leading revenue at Funding Circle. But how often do you have to remind people out here and when you're East and any aspiring entrepreneur that you have to surround yourself with the right people to be successful? Sure. Well, it's a, it's a little bit of uh, our secret sauce. I think you and I are, are, are pretty bright and we're super hardworking, but damn, we have a bunch of smart people that work with us. Yeah. Uh, and I think that that's one of the things I always think about is surround yourself with the smartest people you possibly can. Yeah. And it's going to make you better. Um, and I think that that was really important to me when I was at Funding Circle is I was one of the first things I had to do was look myself in the face and say, okay, you got to hire managers now who are going to report into you. Go out there and find the best freaking managers who are way smarter than you to lead the organizations. You got to yep. find a great manager for the sales team, got to find a great manager for the, for the channel sales team, got a great manager for the BD team, great manager for the partnerships team. They got to be way smarter and more capable than you. You just got to get them to believe in you as the leader. Yeah. If, if, they, if they don't believe in you as a leader, then they'll leave or they'll never take the job. Hmm. Right? Obviously, I'm oversimplifying it, but that's how I had to get look at, look at hiring really talented people. So I went out there and, and pitched an amazing platform, but this opportunity for them to grow. And then you have to show them the path of growth. But you, you hire them and you, you pitch them on the opportunity and you give them enough rope that they can go lead on their, themselves. But then you got to always think six to 12 months ahead. Because you have to be leading them, which is really challenging when you have really smart people working for you. Yeah, and if the people are smarter than you, uh, trying to, to cut down to application or utility for listeners is to get someone to believe in you, they have to believe in your soft skills, mm -hmm. right? You have to show them those. What are some ways that as a leader, if you're hiring someone, you haven't built that trust in a relationship yet, yeah. why do they believe in you or you know, yep. the next person? Well, I think the first one is just being really pragmatic about where you want it, how you're going to get there. Yeah. Right? Everyone thinks that the startup they work for, the company they work for is, is the next rocket ship. So I think very, being very thoughtful about the path to that and what the risks that can make that rocket ship blow up midair and being very transparent. And so I think that that is sort of the first thing. And I think that people, uh, smart people are going to be able to pick up on that if they believe your story, which hopefully is authentic and you're not lying to them. I never would. The market opportunity is huge for some funding circle. It still is. And so I would talk about the opportunity that we have to grow as an organization and to impact lives. But here are the risks. And I would talk about the risk as well. And I would be very, very transparent about and, and set, setting expectations before I hired them. So that was one of the things. Transparency yeah. is one of the biggest things when you're hiring someone is to make sure that they understand fully what they're getting into. Yeah. Because the worst thing you can have is someone join a team and all of a sudden be like, this isn't what you said when you interviewed me. You know, that's terrible. Yeah. Then you're like, well, well, things change, right? Things change all the time in a startup, and you need to remind people that when they're joining one. Yeah. Uh, and I think that's one. And I think the other one is, is, is really just passion for the business. For me, it was personal. You know, I think that there's two things. I think money is personal in general, so we're lending money to small business owners. But two, I was that small business owner. I still am that small business. So were you. Yeah. Right? And being that small business owner and, and going to 100 different banks and knocking on doors and getting shut down with a great business plan was really personal to me. And so, you know, I would tell that story. And so I think people would buy into that. And it was real. It was a real live example. I wasn't talking, and, and, and no disrespect to all the amazing startups and people that are working on cool apps out here, but like I wasn't talking about some app on type of an app and comparing it to some like Uber of this. Right. I was just saying we are lending to small businesses, which are the backbone of America, and we are helping them put food on the table for their family and for their employees and create great products for uh, uh, consumers. 
or other businesses. And that's what we're doing. We are helping them grow. And do you want to be a part of that? And it was just very simple and authentic and real. Yeah. So I think people would buy into that. And all of this didn't end as you uh, led revenue at Funding Circle. You Concurrent to all that, we then launched a pretty lengthy investment portfolio off of what we had learned from there. And that's what's Rabel Ventures now. Yep. Uh, and I began to, at the same time as you, began overlooking and managing our gyms. And we also started our own concept from scratch, a spin cycle, TRX, personal group training uh, concept called mm-hmm. Turnstile Cycle in mm-hmm. Boston. Mm-hmm. So we grew that portfolio, the fitness portfolio. I stepped away from selling memberships, mm-hmm. learned a lot, began to operate my own company's Paul Rabel Experience. Mm-hmm. We just recently launched Rabel Events, got heavy into media, which is still a focus of mine now. Mm-hmm. So we were living in on two coasts, but together now getting access to deal flow from an investment standpoint, which is very different than operating, which we spent the bulk of our time here talking about. And that was uh, primarily sourced through organic relationships and network that we had built between your friends at Mm. Dartmouth, uh, the folks that I've uh, built relationships with in lacrosse, and then extension of those networks. And then we would say, okay, we're good at uh, sports. We understand technology pretty well. Um, we have experience as operators. We now know the financial services business well with, with, with your involvement in fintech. Um, so, so we were pretty uh, thoughtful in, in, in areas that we knew we could add strategic value. Um, we started building influence through our network and, and through my social media and a lot of these products and companies that we have in our portfolio now. Um, we can sell through. It's part of the, the modern athlete uh, play here is is athletes that can temporarily at least solve marketing budget issues for startups, um, and, uh, and and so so launched Rabel Ventures. And how have you um, kind of as we sit here look back on on what we've done from a portfolio standpoint and 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 the strategy we deployed and maybe things you would have done differently and, and things that you're hoping to accomplish there? Mm-hmm. Well, we're still at the early part of our careers. So yeah. I think we have a long way to go yeah. and a lot to learn. And so we got to pat ourselves with amazing mentors, investors, and operators. But I think if, if, if you and I are honest with ourselves, we're operators, yeah. we're entrepreneurs. Uh, and I think some of the, if, if we decide we want to go full-time into investing at some point, um, uh, as an industry, I think we're going to have a leg up because we know what our, what we're good at. We know what we're bad at, but we know that we're operators. And I think that the best investors often are great operators. Um, but I still think we have, we still have that operating gene in us and we want to see that through. And so I think it's a really amazing time to be together with you and to have this opportunity to have left funding circle in an amazing spot and to be really great, uh, uh, with everyone there and, now have this blank canvas and work with you on the platform that you've been building and I've been building behind the scenes with you Mm -hmm. for the past, you know, 10 years. And now, you know, you have built an incredible platform through your play on the field, through having um, a a big media presence and working hard at that. And what people don't realize is like, is that lacrosse is still a niche sport. It's a growing sport, but it's niche. And the fact that you've been able to build your brand as big as you have is because you work hard. I mean, you're buying all this stuff. You're, 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 you've bought into YouTube years ago. You've yeah. been putting media and content out there for a long time. You were on social media a long time ago. 
we were bought into that. You know, you told me to get on Twitter, but I told you on Instagram. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, but you know, it's it, it's it's because of your hard work and dedication to the to the uh, in the understanding that content is valuable. Yeah. So now we're at this place where you and I have had some operational wins and losses, mm-hmm. and but we have real operational chops. And so, how do we come together as a team now? Take a step back and say, what are we going to go long on? Mm-hmm. And I think that's lacrosse. Yeah. I think there's a great opportunity with our skill sets to yeah. complement each other and do that well. And then obviously all the other ancillary opportunities that come from there, whether it's an in investing or you know private equity or um, other in media or creative opportunities, they're going to be there for us as long as we continue to do things with hard work and integrity. Yeah. When you look at lacrosse for us and then broadly sports, what makes it so dynamic in today's world where there's such high and vast consumption of media turnover um, in storylines, what used to be a two week period of a, of a story launching and, and picking up steam and then being the end of it is turned into two days is now two hours. Um, uh, so people are consuming across the web um, there's political uncertainty. Uh, there's you know, there's a little bit of of uh, scarcity around on what's going to happen to our economy after seven years of of prosperity and the typical turn that we see. Um, sports still remains generationally agnostic. People talk with their grandparents, their their parents, and their children about the Kyrie Irving deal. Um, parents pass along their stick to their kids who pass it to their kids. Uh, is there anything that, that you like more about sports specifically and, and why it is, is such a powerful industry? Well, I think that sports uh, creates an opportunity to be creative and to work with really dynamic people. Um, you're starting to see the crossover, which I think that you've been involved with, which I know you've been involved with for the past 10 years of athletes starting to cross over into business. And we're at a really interesting time. And how do we capture the amazing attributes and characteristics and talent and competitiveness and hunger and desire and resiliency of athletes and apply that to the business world? And I think that's what's unique about you know, the t- our team Yeah, is that we have a team of people. Uh, that work with us, that are partners and employees, that are really well poised to create a platform for other people to come join us, other athletes to come join us, yep. uh, and in a lot of different capacities. And if they want to learn to be operators, we have companies that they can plug in and be operators. If they want to be investors, we have good deal flow. If, if they want to be a part of something new we're starting, come join us, right? And so I think that that's really interesting for me, is that you're starting to see people which come over and as you've coined, the modern athlete be starting to want to become modern athletes. Yeah. So we have a platform now for people to become modern athletes, which gets me really excited. Yeah. I think overall across the verticals that we're hitting, um, and some of them um, are, are near-term, others long-term, is that we're looking at the sport in a way that we want to grow participation. We would certainly want to grow distribution, and that be through the way that games are being broadcast, the way that content's being created. Um, and, and we want to grow opportunity for the current group of pro athletes and 
the generation underneath us that wants to play professionally and internationally and however that goes. So when you talk about the verticals, you certainly look at the youth level and events. You look through college and how our game's positioned that way. You look at the professional level, indoor and outdoor. You're looking at overseas with the Israel Premier League and 59 countries now being uh, sanctioned to play at the international level. When you look at international, you look at hard goods, soft goods, you get media, which is a big piece of what you talked about. So what, what we're hoping to do is, is, uh, is have an impact in areas uh, that we see the most growth, um, but deploy the, the operational tactics and the experience that we have knowing that you can't just say, hey, we're going to be everywhere. You have to build the org structures and treat each business as its own and give its undivided attention. Totally. Which, uh, comfortably sitting here across from you talking about how you've been able to do so uh, from high school to college to, to now professionally in your career, look at multiple projects, see them through mm-hmm. simultaneously uh, without having any water down effect on one or the other is, uh, is an ongoing process for us and something that we're looking to do. Is that right? That's correct. And I think that we have to be incredibly thoughtful about that and very fair. We need great partners. We have a, a great bench of, of partners, but we need more to help us deploy the vision that we have for sports and, and particularly lacrosse. Yep. And so I've learned through businesses that I've launched that if you have an operating partner for something, you better be damn fair with equity yep. and not try to keep it all. Yep. And I've lost friendships and I've lost partners over things like that. Yep. And so fairness is really important to me. Mm-hmm. I'd rather have a piece of a tangible tie, pie than a, than no a small piece of a tangible pie than than rather than no piece of an air pie. Yeah, it's something that vanishes. Yeah, and so for for us, we know the value and how to construct really good, meaningful terms with operating partners to help us grow our businesses. And you know, I think that we're you know, especially the crossways, we're focused on it right now. We're we're going to get a lot of pushback because the markets they say the market's small. How many people are viewing it? How many people are watching it? Yeah. And there's going to be most people that say no to the opportunities we bring them because we want to be involved at the pro level and, and, and at the youth level even more so. Well, the, the market's small, they're going to say, right? How big is the address? What's TAM, total addressable market? They're going to all say it to us, right? They're going to say it's, it's, it's sizable and it's growing, but we think we can make the market bigger. And like, oh, you're just a crazy entrepreneur, right? Yeah, yeah a little bit. We definitely are, yeah. <laughs> right? And because we're Lebanese and a little bit crazy. <laughs> but the, the, what we think we can do is that lacrosse hasn't been given the attention those other sports have. Yep. And so we think that we can bring fans to the sport through a variety of different ways, which is our secret sauce and our recipe. Yep. And we think that we can grow the sport because we're attracting more fans to it. Mm-hmm. And we have a strategy we've been crystallizing, and we're ready to go. Yeah, and and I think it's really important to know that this isn't just a, a pie in the sky idea. I mean, we're sitting here in San Francisco together. I know you live here, but we were out here and we were at Steph Curry's and Andre Iguodala's Player Tech Summit. Fortunately and gracious to uh, graciously invited, yep. um, but sitting with the founders and CEOs of Bleacher Report to Complex, uninterrupted. And, and so when we talk about media servicing our sport, these are relationships that are important to us that we want involved in our products as well. And we know there's interest there because we've had these conversations and, and others as well. 
Yep. Tim Katz at YouTube, friend of both of ours. You introduced me to him, and yep. I try to spend uh, a, a, at least a, a, a physical trip at YouTube and Facebook and, and Twitter and Snapchat once a year to just say like, hey, here's here's who I am, and I want to be a guinea pig on your platform and try whatever you have new and, and try to uh, go long on the areas that, that based on the feedback you're giving me, I, we've been successful. Yep. Um, so when we look at strategy and content and distribution, this is stuff that, like Rabel Ventures, we have positioned ourselves along the way, uh, fortunately, through our network and our friends and starting all the way back to the origin of our, of our family um, to build off of. And so, I, you know, this has been amazing. I've had other... Um, notes or, or avenues I wanted to trail down, but it feels like the right place to end for now. We'll probably do more down the line. Oh, man, that's it. I got another <laughs> thirty in me. <laughs> <laughs> but I, but I, but I wanted to, you and I were talking about quotes and and we talk about networking and well, how do you network? And I asked you, well, what are the soft skills that you can drive people get get to get behind you when you're bringing smarter people in to work with you? Um, we sat down and got to listen to Andre Agassi and Joe Montana, and they reminded you of your um, college coach at Dartmouth. Told you something simple to maintain, and it's something that, that we really think through as entrepreneurs and networkers. Yeah, I mean, I, I, we were talking about this uh, yesterday. You know, Andre Agassi reminded us of it, but I was, I was with one of my old football coaches at a wedding this past summer, and he's been through a lot. It just a lot, a lot, and, and and it's been tough on his life uh, from a professional and family personal experience. And I was sitting there, and obviously we were you know, a couple of drinks deep, and I said to him, I was like, Coach, give me some advice. I was like, you've seen a lot, and you're a very bright guy. You went to Tufts. He was super smart. He's an entrepreneur. I said, you've seen a lot personally and professionally. I was like, what's, what's the advice? Just give it to me. I need it. And he said, I'll tell you what, Rabes. He's like, be kind. It's free. I said, what? He's like, it's free. It doesn't cost you anything, Rabes. And you can get so many places by being kind. And I just sat there for 20 minutes and thought about that and thought about the times where insecurity pops up for me, where maybe I'm not as kind as I should be Mm -hmm. because I'm insecure about something or my ego might be damaged or someone thinks of me in some way. So I have to be terse or short. And I think that that was really meaningful to me. And that's something I'm trying to apply not only to business, but to my personal relationships. And I have to remind myself of that all the time. It keeps coming up for me and and business and personal life are so intertwined and people want to say they're separate, but the way you treat people in your personal relationships is the same way you're going to treat them in your business relationships. So why not practice at both at the same time? It's like the way you practice for a game is the way you're going to play. Right. Yeah. Andre Agassi and and Joe Montana talked about being kind uh, and they talked about being curious uh, one thing that that stuck with me, and um, I've always I've said this on the show a number of times. One of my favorite podcasters is Tim Ferriss, and Andre was looking at a lot of the basketball players in the room uh, that many of us would take this this bet on uh, any day of the week, which said, "Hey, you meet someone, invite them to your game." And I was like, "Well, I hope I get invited to some games." <laughs> but I I thought about that, and and uh, yeah. Tim Ferriss was was really generous over Twitter when I had the New York Times piece come out a month or so ago, and he posted it because I had mentioned him in it. And so I shot him a note back, and I was like, hey, whenever you're in New York, love for you to come to a game. And it was, it was really, uh, really nice to hear Andre Agassi say, okay, you need to be kind, you need to be intellectually curious, and here's something that you can do on top of it. It taught me a lesson to say, like, you know, be nice, 
but go beyond that and provide a recommendation. To Be someone. tangible with it. Yeah. Yeah. And so I, I think a couple more questions. You speak at a really high level. Uh, most of it comes through experience. And sometimes I have to like sit back and process the way you're talking about loans and, and small businesses starting from scratch and uh, just the, the, <clears throat> the nuts and bolts of everything. How are you consuming content? Meaning, what are your favorite newsletters to take in, be it through email, uh, podcasts that you listen to, and a book recommendation that's relevant to you? Sure. I mean, I'm taking in most of my content right now uh, via, via Twitter. Hmm. This isn't a Twitter pl- plug because I'm in, because I'm in uh, San Francisco. It's just because it's, I mean, the media right now Twitter is an all-time high. And if you curate your list and you follow the right periodicals or publications or influencers or journalists, you get really high-quality co- high content. And so I, I caught myself last month not reading a book because I was just spending so much time reading articles that were just being pumped to me because I spent a bunch of time curating my Twitter list. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, obviously the Washington Post is incredible recently. I think they'll probably be up for a Pulitzer. I mean, New York Times continues to put out great content. You know, I, I also try to f- follow what's happening on the other side of the aisle. Even though I don't agree with it, but I follow Fox News, right, just to see what's happening. So I try to make myself very relevant with the news. And obviously, there's there's great newsletters. I like the term sheet. I'm a big fan of that. What Dan Primack was able to create there. Yep. Uh, now it's being carried by Aaron, but it's, it still provides amazing news and yeah. updates that are relevant for for us. That's as fortune, operators. right? Yeah, fortunes. Yeah. Um, but it's just like it comes in your inbox right away. I mean, I think they work on it overnight. That's the way I get a lot of content. Um, Dan Primack has his own now uh, called Axios. Yep. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I like to stick to his original stuff. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Blue collar that way. <laughs> you uh, you read the skim, right? I read the skim. The hustle. The hustle. Um, hashtag sports. Hashtag sports. Shout out to those guys, Gonzaga yeah. guys. Yeah, they're great. Keeping it, keeping yeah. it DC. I mean, <laughs> there's just so much good content, and you find yourself like with how the news cycle is. I saw this this gift today that was like, it was like being a. It was like a gift by a journalist. I think it was. Um, I think it was like Maggie Haberman or someone retweeted it, and she, she said like. Being a journalist is like running on this treadmill. You're falling off because it's just like new in the news is just coming all the time. Yeah. And so, you know, and that's happening in business too. And it's the accessibility technology has made media and journalists so accessible to what's happening mm. that so much news is just being fed to you all the time. Gosh, and so nuts. if you pay attention, you can just, you can really educate yourself really quickly with free content that's available by amazing journalists that yeah. are out there. Yep. What about a book? A book, a book that I've read a couple times um, that's been really meaningful to me is Man's Search for Meaning by Viktor Frankl. Um, it's, a t- it's a tough read because he goes into his experience. He read it right after he got out of the Holocaust. Um, and he goes deep into his experience there. So it's tough to get through. But there's a, there's a, there's a thread there that applies, I think, for everyone where he just talks about his, his sort of true north. And, focused on his tr- and focusing on his true north while he was in several concentration camps kept him alive. And so I think that reminds me how to stay focused on, on not only continuing to develop and fine tune my true North, but staying focused on that and, and living my life that way uh, with, with integrity to, to uphold that, that goal. Yeah. I, th- I think it's wonderful. You say, you say the true North and for a lot of young athletes and entrepreneurs out there, you could boil that down to goal setting and and what is your goal, knowing that it can change over time. And when you're ever in a pickle, I was talking about this on the sports side with Joel Tenney actually this past year, um, when you have a bad practice or when you're really tired 
during midterms or whatever it is, and you don't have the energy, and you're like, oh, man, knowing that he's in a leader position as I was, the, the rest of your players are going to get a read on your body language. It's easy just to think. A little hack is like, what is my goal? And for a lot of these college athletes, it's to position yourself to win a national championship. And it's pretty easy then to backtrack and say, is this practice going to help us get there? And it is. And if it's something that I don't want to do, that's a feeling that I'm recognizing, that I'm feeling. But knowing going through this practice is going to help us collectively take one step closer to a championship. Let's do it. And let's do it well. Right. Right. Yeah. And so goal setting, reminding yourself of that, reminding yourself of that true north. Is, is, a, is a great recommendation. Probably a good place to end our, our first conversation. Great. Let's do many more. This is yeah. awesome. Yeah, we'd love to. Thanks for hosting me. You got Keep it. Keep it up, brother. If you enjoyed our conversation as much as I did, please be sure to let us know. And as always, here are two big takeaways for me. The first, emotional intelligence or your soft skills. How are you connecting with those that you play with, those that you work for, or even work with? These skills include empathy, vulnerability, your ability to listen, honesty, your humor, class, and there are more. They are vastly underrated from my perspective, and they'll only become more important as technology takes on a larger role in our society. Item number two, take risks. Mike constantly embrace the suck, as we call it, and actually he calls it. He has a vision to build great properties, and that takes a lot of sacrifice. He's done so several times already, and we're hoping to continue to build for the future. Now, continue the conversation with me on social media. Tweet at me, at Paul Rabel. I try to answer every one of my mentions that come through regarding hashtag suiting up pod. And be the first to listen to future episodes, as well as catch up on previous episodes, including my one-on-one conversation with New England Patriots head coach Bill Belichick. Good luck this season, coach. Team USA women's soccer captain and ESPN analyst Julie Foudy. NFL quarterback Drew Brees. Good luck this season, Drew. And NBA star Jeremy Lin. You can find all these episodes and more on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, TuneIn, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to your pods. Apparently, there are a lot of places you can. Shortcut to our show notes, including social media links for Mike, links to our businesses that we've invested in and operated, and you can do so by visiting suitinguppodcast.com. Shout out Neil Savage. Great work there. Finally, our show's sponsors. Be sure to support them the way that you so graciously support this show. And until next time, my friends, have fun suiting up. Actually, I don't know if that's a good close, but I'll see you guys next week.